Welcome back to Life on My Terms, a podcast dedicated to helping you become the best version of yourself and take charge of your life. My goal for each episode is to empower you to be your best self, become 1% better every day, and achieve everything you want in this thing called life. I am your host, Amy Mongeta, at Life on My Terms podcast on Instagram. And before we jump into today's episode, please remember to rate and review the podcast via your platform of choice and share with your friends and family. Today, I sit down to chat about one of my favorite self-care topics, which is sleep with Dr. Chris Winter. We're going to get to the bottom of sleep, why it's important, why yours may be broken, and of course, how to fix it. But before we get there, Dr. Chris Winter has practiced sleep medicine and neurology in Charlottesville, Virginia since 2004, but has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research since 1993. Currently, he is the owner of Charlottesville Neurology and Sleep Medicine Clinic and CNSM Consulting. And he is actually also the author of one of my favorite books, The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. You're going to love this one, so let's jump in. Dr. Chris Winter, welcome to Life on My Terms podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Amy, and yourself? Doing well. Um, where are you in the world? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia right now. Okay. What's the weather like there? The weather is hot and humid. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm in be, Florida. <laughs> seems to be standard. Where in Florida are you? I'm in the Tampa Bay area. So, yeah, so we're coming down there in about a week or so. Okay. Um, yeah. Beautiful place down there. Love it. Beautiful. Yes. It's just a little hot right now. Looking forward to it cooling off. All right. Well, great. Well, so excited to chat with you today. I always love my guests to just give a little introduction about who you are and you kind of come with a little bit of cool expertise in sleep. So I've just loved to understand who you are and like how, how and why did you begin focusing on sleep? Sure. So, um, I'm a neurologist by training, but when I was an undergraduate student, I was looking for sort of experiences to kind of inform me as to what I might want to do in medicine, which was sort of my plan going into college and just happened to start working with a doctor who did sleep research, which I thought was really cool and did it with him and never really intended it to be a career, but we just kind of continued to work together and I just never really left. I liked the people in the field. I liked the field. When I went to medical school, I got interested in neurology and there was a nice sort of synergy between the brain and sleep. And so here I am. Yeah. And you're, you've authored some amazing, well, one of my favorite books, The Sleep Solution. It's, it's a very helpful book, which I love. Oh, that's very kind of you. I am. Yeah, that was interesting. I, at some point, so I started seeing, you know, sort of being on my own and seeing patients in 2004 and probably somewhere, you know, eight, 10 years after that, I was 
sort of interested in writing down some of my thoughts about sleep. You know, I'd sort of had the training and been in the situation long enough to kind of create my own ideas. So I started sort of a, a, what I thought would be a little flyer. I would give patients, here's a flyer on insomnia, yeah. here's a flyer on menopause, you know, whatever. And so I just kind of made these little Microsoft Word documents. I would work on them when I was on a flight or waiting for a flight or <laughs> delayed on a flight. <laughs> and it just, the document just grew to this massive thing that I didn't really know what to do with. And this guy called me up one day and said, hey, I read an article you wrote for a magazine. I think you should write a book. And so I just sent him this massive Word document and he sold it. <laughs> so wow. it was a total accident, but a really, a really good one. Yeah. And it's amazing that you actually give that backstory because again, I found the book to be so helpful. Like you can, you learn and can practically apply. And sometimes in like self-help or like self-care books, that's not really the case. So maybe the way that the book even evolved, um, you sort of solved a problem there. <laughs> so that's cool. No, it was interesting. My, the, the second time I wrote a book, I, I guess it was much more of a typical process, but mm -hmm. I don't know. People have said that maybe that sort of influenced things in some way that it felt more like a conversation that you were having or something rather than let's sit down and, and write a book that covers X, Y, and Z. In fact, we had to, the, the biggest problem with it was there was too much in that original yeah. document. I had stuff about kids and older people and athletes and all kinds of stuff. They were like, you have to cut it down, uh, which was really hard. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think that this this book did evolve in kind of a strange way. That's that's really cool to know. Okay, so let's jump in. I am um, I'm personally a huge sleep fan as a self-care coach and working with folks with burnout. It's usually one of those first like pillars of self-care, but I'm also a marathoner and I cannot tell anybody I'm like shoot always screaming it from the rooftops like sleep is your best form of recovery. So I think I'd just love to start with the basics. Um, can you just give an overview of like why sleep is so important for anyone? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting that you're an elite athlete. I, I work with a lot of them, um, professional sports teams. I'm working with an NBA, I was just talking to an NBA team right before we got on about their upcoming schedule and how travel will affect them because they're traveling abroad for this one isolated game in the middle of the season. and then coming back and going right back into the season. So it's interesting, you mentioned pillar. I, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, sort of what does our health, what does our recovery rest upon? And maybe more importantly, what things do we actually have some degree of dominion or control over? Um, my father was an ex-football player and a coach and he used to say something that always irritated me as a smaller person, which was you can't coach big because he never wanted me to play football, which I didn't. Um, and he was like, you're not big enough for it's not you're you're not sized for football. I mean, you can't, I can make you fast, I can teach you certain things, but I can't coach you to be big. And I've thought about that a lot over the years that, yeah, your size and stature to some degree is is sort of set genetically, but you know, your sleep, the way you train, the way you maybe stretch before you work out or ice yourself after what you eat, what is your mental mindset? All these things are very much under our control and sleep's a big one. Um, and I would imagine if you were to kind of lay them all out for the average athlete, 
particularly the average young athlete, sleep might be the one that they completely overlook. And I think it's been overlooked in sports for a very long time. You know, it's always striking to me when you walk into the training center of some organization, some team, you're like, oh my God, like the kitchen's amazing in the weight room. Each player has his own yeah. you know, rack and it's just awesome. And they want you there, you know, eight in the morning and they do other treatments on you. And then you walk out the door at the end of the day or after the game and they don't care about you until you come back to the door the next morning. But those eight hours couldn't be more important. And, and to answer your question, sleep is everything when it comes to our recovery, particularly when you're talking about things that really take a toll on your body, a marathon runner a basketball player, a baseball player, a football player. I mean, all these things take some sort of toll. So after the game, there has to be a period of your body recovering from the insults that it just experienced, not only in terms of like an injury, but just a great game or a great run. Everything went perfect. Your body felt great, but there was still a toll nutritionally, physically that that, that athlete, that that academic, that, uh, athletic endeavor is, is, is created. And so sleep, has a huge role in our ability to recover, particularly when you look at an athlete over a longer period of time, meaning that, you know, for instance, when we have a lot of deep sleep, which is sort of occupies the first half of our night, primarily an hour or two for most people every night, that's when we create growth hormone, which when you're little, growth hormone makes you grow, makes you a little baby, a, a big, you know, adolescent or teenager. But even when we've stopped growing, growth hormone is still vitally important to strengthening our bones, repairing our muscles, keeping ourselves from getting sick. Or if we do get sick, making that illness mild and not something that's more significant. Injury recovery, both micro and macro, a mm -hmm. torn hamstring or just the little micro injuries you would get on a long run. And so, you know, the, the secret to longevity, the secret to performance is probably really good sleep. Yeah, it's really interesting too. And I, I want to kind of ask you this. Um, so I, I, as an athlete, I always used to think of sleep as like, this is my recovery period, right? It's like powering down and I'm going to get the recovery. But what I started to notice over time when I layer in, you know, adding the work stress and the day ahead, I started to think about my good night's sleep is really preparing me for the next day. Like if I don't have that sleep, how good am I actually going to be just functioning the next day? Do you find that to be, is that like a, a, a true statement or am I just sort of imagining? Because I'm always like, I think I'm preparing for the next day, not really always thinking of recovering for this day, but the next day. No, I think so. And, and there's a, there is a bit of a tightrope there that is a difficult sort of nuanced concept to give to the people that you work with or an athlete which is and i always summed it up with sleep is the most most important thing in the world outside of bacon and sex <laughs> however tonight's sleep is largely irrelevant and what I always meant what i mean by that is that yes tonight's sleep is going to prepare me for tomorrow but as any soldier or trauma surgeon or law clerk or student who had to pull an all-nighter for a chemistry exam will tell you you can go a night without sleep mm -hmm. like we can sit up and talk about sleep and marathoning and good places to eat in tampa all <laughs> night long and oh my gosh it's noon 
on Saturday. We've literally been talking for 24 hours. We could do it. We wouldn't feel great tomorrow, but we could do okay. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to some athletes, they'll tell you, you know, my training was great. My sleep's been great. My nutrition is great. But the night before the race, wow, it was not yeah. good. I got to the hotel, checked in. It was noisy. There was a bunch of people you could tell excited about the race and partying. The so I didn't literally sleep well, but I actually performed a whole lot better in the race than I thought I would. So we're always trying to tell athletes or patients or clients, prioritize your sleep, make it great, make your nutrition great. But the idea that a baseball player, if he skipped dinner on Tuesday night, would right. not be available to play on Wednesday. Hey, coach, you have to take me out of the game. Why? Well, I forgot to eat dinner last night. So obviously I can't play. Well, no, their bodies are a little better than that. So that's one of the things that we want to sort of impress upon athletes, which is don't put everything on tonight's sleep for tomorrow's race. If gotcha. you've been somebody who's really prepared well, and has slept well the last 29 days, sure, I'd love for you to sleep well tonight, but that's not going to make or break anything. Um, yeah, so it's just so more of like so, that balance. Absolutely. So we we want sort of a sense of control there that, you know, you're going to do the best you can to control these variables in your life. But understanding that, you know, if I met somebody who said, hey, I'm 43 years old and I've never had a difficult night of sleep in my life, I would think that was bizarre versus the 43 year old who said, yeah, from time to time, I have a difficult time sleeping. That's, yeah. that's the way humans work. And I think that anybody that's ever run a Disney race knows that the night before your sleep is going to be terrible because you have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning just to even get to the race. So it's like, what does it even matter going to sleep right. that night? And it is interesting when you talk to people who do races like that, you know, the individuals who maybe in the few weeks leading up to the race actually get up at three o'clock and start, you know, kind of recreating that schedule versus the individuals who train every day after work for, you know, it's five, 6 p.m. They do their runs and race stuff for the race that's going to begin at 5 a.m. in Florida. It's often interesting when you talk to them, they'll like, oh, you know, I'm not sure why I did so poorly in Florida. And when you think of circadian rhythms, that's a whole other thing about what is the timing of the event that you've got to do with the understanding that we all have sort of academic, athletic peaks at different times of the day and troughs at different times of the day. I'm a very different runner. I usually run around three, four o'clock in the evening after my clinic. If I were to run at three to four a.m., 12 hours earlier, same course, same run, I would be a very different performer because my body's not used to performing at that time of day. So one of the things I always try to impress upon people who are doing races, like you said, is you might want to do some training around that time of the race just to kind of prepare yourself for that. And that's something we see in professional athletes. They've got all these spring training games in the morning. And suddenly when the season starts, all the games are at 7 p.m. And their bodies aren't used to being academically or I'm sorry, athletically great at that time of day. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, so one more question around just like the basics of sleep. I've always been fascinated. You talked about deep sleep and what its job is, but a lot of us that wear these fun devices and we're tracking yeah. our sleep, you know, what, what is REM and light sleep? What are their roles? And I guess they obviously all are very important. Yeah. So 
um, when you think about sleep, you can sort of divide it, you know, just kind of think of a pie chart. And if you divide the pie in half, for, for the most part, half of our night is spent in light sleep. It's mm -hmm. sort of the foundation of sleep. And when you think about light sleep, dream sleep or REM sleep, deep sleep and being awake, everything moves through light sleep. So I, I, I drew a picture of it in my book. If you think about awake here, dream here, deep here and light in the middle, we kind of move like this. You're awake, light sleep, some dreaming back to light sleep, some deep sleep, back to light sleep. You wake up for a minute, scratch your head, back to sleep, another dream. Back. So you're always kind of moving in this axis. So most of our sleep is light sleep. And then the other half to the pie, if you divide it in half, a quarter in REM sleep, a quarter in deep sleep, roughly. Um, so when you're wearing the aura ring or the whoop band or the Withings watch or whatever you like to wear, this gives you a little bit of context for okay, I had 22% deep sleep. That sounds kind of bad. If I got a 22 on a math exam, that's failing. But 22% is actually really quite good. 20%, 25%, 15%. That's what we should look for in terms of deep sleep. Same thing with dream sleep. And when you divide the night in half, most of the deep sleep should happen in the first half of the night. That's usually okay. when we get our deep sleep versus most of our dreaming comes in the second half. So if you're, again, looking a little print out from your watch and you see some really nice cycles of deep sleep and then they just disappear that's that's good that's exactly what should happen those deep sleep cycles tend to lend themselves to more dream cycles in the second half of the night and those are very important because if individuals are talking about problems with their sleep wow i sleep great when i go to sleep and then for the last two to three hours before my alarm clock goes off i'm just up and down up and down up and down that makes you feel like, oh, there's a problem with the second half of the night versus mm -hmm. I really struggle in the first half of the night when my alarm clock goes off. I feel like I was just starting to get some sleep. Maybe that's more of an issue with the first half of the night. And, and the halves of our nights are very different. So that can provide clues to what might be going on with somebody's sleep. Yeah, that is really, really fascinating because I remember back going through a period when I was suffering a really um, big burnout and I was having chronic insomnia and I was laying awake till one o'clock, two in the morning, and then I was getting to sleep and I was almost bypassing the normal amounts of light sleep I was getting. And I was just getting like this chunk of deep sleep, but obviously I wasn't getting enough hours of sleep, but I was just waking so tired and like unable to remove this fog because I almost was like in deep sleep and then immediately awake. <laughs> so yeah. interesting. Really interesting. Okay. So how does um sleep affect? So how does our day affect our sleep? So what we're eating, sure. all the devices oh, yeah. we're on, the stress. It's it, it big. It's a huge impact. Our days inform our nights tremendously. And the, the obvious thing that you see is, is schedule. So are you somebody, you know, one of the first questions I ask a patient um, when I'm working with them is what time do you go to bed and when do you wake up? And that can be an extremely short answer. I'm in bed by 10, lights out 10, 15, I'm up by seven. Or it can be an answer that sort of goes on forever. Um, well, it depends on this. And if I'm working this and sometimes I'll switch shifts with this. And if my kid's going to travel, like, you know, like you're like, wow, you got 30 minutes of this appointment. We've burned 15 of you just <laughs> asking him how long it takes you to fall. So that schedule is very important. And as a neurologist, brains love a schedule. 
So, you know, you can feel what you feel about a situation like the Naval Academy. But what's wonderful about the Naval Academy is you walk up and talk to a, a student that goes there and ask them, what, what goes on in your life every day at two o'clock or at 530 in the morning? It's the same answer every day. It doesn't mm -hmm. change. They have a rigid schedule. And when you have that kind of schedule, the brain starts to understand exactly what is being asked of it at any time. Um, and, and, and furthermore, if there is a hiccup in the sleep or a hiccup in the day, it doesn't change the schedule. One of the biggest problems that a lot of people have with their sleep is when their sleep or their day is variable. Well, if I have you know, the opportunity on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I don't go to the office, I'll sleep until noon and then log on to my meetings or whatever. But on the days I have to go to the office because of traffic, I'm up at five. It's what we call social jet lag. So that changing schedule during the day makes it difficult for the brain to understand when sleep is expected of it during the night. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, is very important during the day is exercise. You know, what are you doing? Do you wake up, go from lying in a dark bedroom in your bed to a dark living room, watching you know, Judge Judy and Hot Bench all day, and then expecting to go to sleep? It's a very different situation than somebody who's active or a carpenter gets up gets to this job site and she's hanging sheetrock and putting in studs all day long. Like that physical activity can make an individual much more likely to sleep when they go to bed at night. Uh, mental activity as well too. So the diet that we consume during the day, how we spend our time, all of those things are extremely important in terms of setting up an opportunity to be successful in bed at night. Fascinating. Yeah, um, that is so interesting. So where um, do you encourage folks to think about a nighttime routine, especially coming off of like really busy, chaotic days, like almost that decompression time leading into sleep? Absolutely. Yeah. And we we always do that with kids, like with babies, mm -hmm. especially. There's always a, well, we, you know, we we have dinner. And then we'll usually do a little bath and then, you know, I'll let them watch one TV show or something. Yeah. And then we read books in bed and we always read three books. And the last book we read is Good Night Moon. And then I scratch her back and then she <laughs> says, I love you. And I say, I love you to the moon. And she says, I love you to Jupiter. And we go on and on and say some prayers for the, you know, poor uncle, such and such on mom's side of the family. And then you go to bed. Uh, so that, that, that ritual and that routine it's just a nice way to connect, but it's also that little child's brain is understanding that, oh, it's TV show time. Oh, it's bath time. Oh, it's book reading time. It's almost like driving down the road and seeing the sign. Okay. You know, Tropicana Stadium, six miles on the left. Okay. Well, I got some time. Oh, it's three miles. Might get over to the left lane. Like it's giving yeah. your brain a sense of this is coming. And we do that with kids all the time. You know, when you're kids are having a little play date you don't just suddenly say we're leaving you gotta like okay this is the 10 minute warning so you know <laughs> finish your lego creation and we're getting the hell out of here anyway, so, you know you gotta do you gotta give them the warning so the brains are the same way but we we tend to lose that with adults and it kind of creates all kinds of bizarre situations of you know, stressful stressful work on the computer stressful email and then close oops sorry close the laptop go to bed like that's hard. Like yeah. you're just like chastising an employee for this terrible report and those typos all over the place, and you're exchanging angry and oh my god, I think I have to fire this person. And then you close the bed, you're like, okay, go to sleep. <laughs> that's you know, that's almost a mutant power to be able to go to sleep in that kind of situation. <laughs> and if somebody said, oh yeah, I can, 
have the most stressful situation happen, close the laptop and go right to sleep. I would actually, as a sleep doctor, wonder about that. Like, why are you so able to do that? You know, it's like I was in an Uber one time and I looked over at the guy. I was like, hey, are you asleep? He goes, yeah. He goes, I can just fall asleep at stoplights. Like, okay, well, let's talk about that because it's going to be a while till we get up to, you know, 52nd and third here. We got some time to talk about your problem here. So he almost considered that to be great or it's not a good thing. So I think that that schedule is very important. Thinking about what do we eat before we go to bed? Are we drinking caffeine or alcohol? Um, what is the light situation in our lives? What are we doing? Are we listening to a kind of a pleasant, fun podcast or doing a Sudoku puzzle? Or are we doing stressful things or watching Rachel Maddow tell us the world's going to end? Like, I got nothing against Rachel Maddow. She's a brilliant woman, but maybe not right before you go to sleep. You, know, you get all fired up like my mother-in-law down in Sarasota. Oh, God, you know. So you know, that's that's the worst. So, yeah, I think that schedule in the evening is really important, as is maybe the schedule when we first wake up. How do we start our day? Mm -hmm. Hey, great time for Rachel Maddow and your video games. And your exercise and you know your caffeine if you like it and whatever so i think people really need to kind of put those things into place and it's interesting because with covid retirement in some older individuals yeah. all those things just kind of disappear or a marathon runner an athlete okay well i'm in my out of season time or yes I'm retired from running well there's going to be dramatic shifts and changes in your sleep are you ready for them? Like even an in-season, out-of-season athlete may have different amounts of sleep that they need. They've got to account for. If you're expecting to sleep, you know, 10 hours when you're not training heavily, that may not be the case. I experienced that firsthand on a marathon block and off. I, I don't, yeah, I'm always like, why can't I fall asleep? Why am I not right. sleeping the same way I was? Well, yes, of course, Amy, you're not running like 20 milers, 25 miles, you know, in that's one right. day. So, yeah. And that's... all those things create chemicals in our brain that promote sleepiness. So, and that's where you give yourself some grace and some change that, okay, I'm not in my heavy training right now. So instead of that 10 hour and nine hour block, I'm more of an eight hour sleeper out of season. Otherwise, those are the kinds of things that start insomnia. It's like, why can't I sleep? I've gone to bed at 10 o'clock for the last three years and I can always fall asleep. And now I'm not right. No fault of your own. It's just that your expectation of sleep doesn't match the reality now based upon your current level of training. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think now that you bring up insomnia, I wanted, I, I'm really curious your thoughts on sleep's effect on mental health. Um, I found myself like having a little bit of generalized anxiety disorder, like during burnout. And so obviously that led to insomnia. And then I'm starting to be anxious because I'm laying awake and the time's going and I'm it's so this is a spiral of just nonsense. And then I wake up, the anxiety is even worse. And so what do you see um, in your expertise, like the link between sleep and, you know, mental health? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I view everybody that I encounter on a spectrum of anxiety, depression. You know, what's the difference between somebody who's an accountant, they're really type A, extremely de detail oriented, the best in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, that that attention to detail, that 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 um, sort of activation or sort of vigilance, is great 
in some people when it's applied to their business or their craft, but it can easily cross over into something that's not great. So I think it's very difficult to be at the top of your sport or at the top of your profession and not be a little bit type A or anxious. Mm -hmm. I don't see anxiety necessarily as a problem Mm -hmm. until it becomes the problem. So Mm -hmm. in other words, a lot of sleep disorders, particularly like insomnia types of things, require a fair amount of anxiety to work. Like you have to be scared of it. The, the child has to be scared of an imaginary monster under their bed for the whole thing to work. If your child's like, oh, I love monsters under my bed. That's the best thing in the world. <laughs> Cannot wait to meet him. Like maybe if I'm really <laughs> quiet, he'll creep out and jump on top of me. And that would be the best. I was like, it, it's funny. My wife, my wife made me take it down. It's like, this is a bizarre post. Take it down. But there was a kid it was in love with Mike Myers, the Halloween, oh. you know, villain with the weird. Yes, he mask caused me of, nightmares for yes, years. You know, I don't, don't want to. I don't want to make make sleep problems in yours. So the mother planned a surprise party for this little, like, five year old girl. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like this tiny little girl, and all of her friends were there. And suddenly, standing out in the cul de sac, just you know, they always just stand there. It's yeah. so menacing and terrifying. <laughs> it's even worse than chasing. They're just standing there kind of looking and not moving. And you're like, oh my God, it's Mike. So she saw Mike (laughs) Myers suddenly just standing in the cul-de-sac and she's like, ah, Mike Myers. She runs towards him and hugs him. And I thought that's the key to insomnia. (laughs) It's that if, if you don't fear it, if you're like, oh, I hope I go to bed tonight and I'm just sitting there awake in my bed, that would be lovely. I'm really excited for that then it doesn't really work anymore. Yeah. So it's kind of like you said, you had a bad night, you woke up, some of your tendencies towards doing things the right way, wanting to be better, dealing with your foot when it hurts when you run and your shoes and your training schedule. Now it's like, well, I've got to sleep better. I can't be awake until one o'clock tonight. That would be terrible. That would be one, two, three, four nights in a row. Like now it's really on. And, and it's breaking that kind of cycle which is really the backbone of what we we tend to do as sleep doctors. We've got to get somebody understanding that A, it's impossible not to sleep. B, insomnia is not not sleeping. It's the fear of not sleeping. So if we can eliminate mm. that fear or at least tamp it down a little bit, then you can make all kinds of recoveries. And and and. But anyway, yeah. So I think about that little girl with the Mike Myers all the time because I think a lot of people are like, ah, insomnia, no, run, running away. And but if you can run towards it or at least be okay with it. The idea that you and I will go to bed in separate place, separate place, God, terrible. Um, you'll go to bed in Tampa, I'll go to bed in Charlottesville tonight, and one of two things will happen. You'll go right to sleep, or you won't. And if you're like, ah, I'm okay with either one of those things, because I got a book, I got a good book to read or whatever, like, then it, it tends to lose its power over people. That is amazing. And also, I would love to meet that little girl. Yeah, you got to look at this. Look up YouTube, YouTube, Mike Myers, little girl or something like that. It's a hilarious video. I mean, it's really interesting. That is so interesting. And actually, it's so funny. The other day, my run coach asked me, like, what runner do you want to be on race day? And I was like, I want to be a runner that like, isn't as take, I'm not taking everything so carefully, right? I'm making some risks. I'm being a little bit more fearless. And just the idea that you said, like, 
okay, I'm cool laying in, asleep. I've got an awesome book and I'm just not even going to like almost care. Like I'm, I'm okay with like that option. I'm like, okay, this is on my path. Ooh. This is good news. Okay. What about physical health? I have read Ooh, a ton of stuff. Okay. I was going to say really quickly. Yeah. Although, no, I was just going to say, I was talking to a, a pitcher one time and we were having a conversation like what you just said, what you want to be. And yeah. And I said, do you worry? Does it stress you out if you have a good game or a bad game? And he kind of looked at me. He's like, not really, because either way, I get a good dinner. <laughs> so I just love that idea that it didn't really matter because he gets dinner. Like, it, <laughs> anyway, I always thought that was kind of an interesting. That is fantastic. It should be on a T-shirt. You know, first place or last place, I still get dinner. It doesn't I love really it. change. You know, yeah. So anyway, I don't know how. No, anyway, but I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that's fine. I'm so glad you shared that again. This is more of this like positive, like let's stop being fear worried about everything. Let's just go with yeah. it. I love it. Um, I'm I'm curious about physical health though. I've seen so many um studies and things, and you know, I'm, I'm always on my husband a little bit because he he doesn't prioritize his sleep. And I wonder what you've seen as far as like actual health concerns and the association of getting like adequate sleep. Yeah, so this is important. I'm glad you brought this up because it's a, it's a, it's a common sort of mistake that people make, which is when we talk about insomnia, we're talking about something that's extremely different, perhaps even the opposite of sleep deprivation. And you know, you can be as meticulous as you, you can be and try to differentiate those things. And, you know, I'm always disappointed when I, I, you get a review of your book or something and somebody says, I don't understand why he doesn't think sleep deprivation is a big deal. You know, no, no. What I said was insomnia. You're getting into bed and it takes you three hours to fall asleep is really not that big of a deal. That's very different from an individual who's got to work two jobs to pay a mortgage. They get off their job at five o'clock, pick their kids up, get them home, fed, and then they're out driving an Uber until three o'clock in the morning and make some supplemental income. Yes. And when you actually sit down and talk to them about when exactly are you sleeping, they're like, yeah, I usually wrap up around 4 a.m., get home at 4.30, I'll sleep till about seven, get the kids on the bus, maybe get another hour, then I'm off to my job. That's that's not enough. you know. So this individual is sleep deprived. They're requiring seven to eight hours, but maybe getting most of the time three or four, maybe a few more hours on the weekend. It's just not enough. Can some people do that? Like, and by do, I mean, make it through their day without some tragic accident. Yeah. When we all did it in residency, it was a brutal, dangerous, unhealthy time, but we did it for three years. We were on call every other night. It was terrible. I would never go back to doing it again, knowing what I know now, but you can do it. Is it healthy? Oh, God, no. Could it have taken six months or a year off my life? Yeah, probably did. I mean, I just, it was not a good time of, of my life, given all that sleep deprivation. So when we're talking about the effect of sleep on health, particularly when you're not getting enough of it, it's absolutely devastating. It is cancer causing, weight promoting, diabetes originating, dementia, uh, high blood pressure, heart failure, stroke, oh, I mean, name a condition, depression, anxiety, all of those things are much worse, which is, 
you know, the whole school start time with kids and the kids get enough sleep when they're in school and all it's just sort of an endless, you, you really couldn't come up with, hey, does sleep relate itself to this medical condition? I, I always tell people there's not a medical condition you could throw out there that I couldn't relate to sleep with about two steps. Well, I don't know if it would cause gout, but <laughs> we know that inadequate sleep causes inflammation, which causes, gout, you know, like gout. so you can always put them together. So yeah, and, and, and we have to be very careful with sleep because a night of bad sleep or three nights of bad sleep doesn't necessarily show up in our lives right away. It's like I always tell people inadequate sleep is like rust. Mm-hmm. You know, like you see a little spot of rust on your car. Well, who cares? Like, just be careful, you know, take, keep, keep an eye on it, you know. But if you really let sleep deprivation go unchecked, there's no end to what it can cause negative in, in, in a human body. And unfortunately, we just can't see that developing very easily. We see a look at Pop. He falls asleep every time he sits down in church. Like, that's funny. Ah, look at Pop. Man. He's already asleep. They've even gotten to him number one. Like, that's what sleep deprivation looks like. And for some people, it's just kind of funny. For other people, they would say, well, Pop's a great sleeper because he can fall asleep in church before him number one. Mm-hmm. But speed with which we fall asleep is actually a terrible metric for sleep quality. But unfortunately, that's the number one metric in this country. People want to get in bed and fall asleep fast. That's what they think is good sleep. And that's not a great way to measure that. Unbelievable. I feel like my mind's being blown just because I feel like you do always hear, oh gosh, if you have insomnia and you're laying awake for a couple hours, you have had the worst night of sleep and all these terrible things are, but you're right. This is such a mindset shift. So I guess when you're talking about the rust or like quality sleep, sleep deprivation, I have to touch on this one because I find just as like a self-care coach, like when this is eliminated, folks are like on their way. What about alcohol? How does it affect sleep, quality sleep? What's the body? Like, what's the process happening? Because I have my husband sometimes be like, I still got seven hours. But then the data is (laughs) like, well, was that really quality sleep? (laughs) Right. So there's, I have, I'm neutral about alcohol um, in the sense that I don't think, I think if you really like a beer with a steak or a glass of red Mm -hmm. wine with your pasta or whatever, then do that. There's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, as long as you're saying, I'm pairing this craft beer with this steak because I really find that to be delicious. I mean, I'm drinking a latte right now <laughs> because I really like yeah. the taste and the ritual and the smell. And it's just, I, I'll sip on this all pretty much all day. So what we have to be careful of is I'm drinking this alcohol to enhance my sleep. And once again, we're back to speed of unconsciousness. Hey, Chris, I hear what you're saying about sleep, but me personally, I just sleep better after a six pack of beer. No, you don't. And nobody would say you do. There's not a piece of evidence out there that in any way, shape or form that would say what you're doing sleep and recovery wise is better with those six beers in your body right before you go to bed than without. What you're actually saying is I'm unconscious better during the night. And that's a dangerous metric. Without the beer, I might be sitting there for 30 minutes. With the beer, I'm immediately out cold and I don't wake up until the alarm. Well, okay, but how do you feel? How do you perform? Did you get the best 
out of the night of sleep that you could have? And the answer is no. So that's where we always want to be very careful is that I have nothing positive or negative to say about alcohol intrinsically. But if you're asking me, hey, Chris, I'd really like to make my sleep as good as it can be. How would you suggest I deal with this alcohol? Because I'll do whatever you say. I would say, have the alcohol earlier in the day. My joke is always, have as much as you want, just have it with breakfast. Don't do that. But what I mean by just give yourself some time to metabolize it and drink in moderation and never associate the alcohol with good sleep. That's where you, well, it just helps me, Chris, because I've got a very active yeah. mind. So the alcohol really helps me to turn my mind off. Well, there's all kinds of better ways to turn your mind off. Plus, who says you have to turn your mind off to go to sleep? Your mind's very active when we sleep. My mind's going a million miles an hour all the time. And I can still fall asleep. So don't come up with these little excuses for why you need that Merlot before you go to bed at night. Fantastic. Love the perspective. Um, that is often what I hear too. It's like, I can't sleep or it helps me fall asleep. And again, you just had a whole perspective change about how like laying awake is actually okay. Everyone needs to calm yeah, down there. Really funny. I mean, when you start looking at sleeping pills, they're often doing about the same thing as alcohol does. But I've always wondered what a patient would do if they went to their doctor instead of getting Amy and they got, you know, a, a nice bourbon, <laughs> like a prescription for bourbon. Like you'd be like, well, this is the worst doctor in the world. Well, why? <laughs> Who wrote me for bourbon before I go to bed? Well, there's not much difference between that and this pill that you've been taking for the last 15 years. So, you know, again, the whole idea that we need something to fall asleep makes about as much sense as, well, I, I look, I just need this to be hungry. You know, I just, it helps me to eat. Well, unless you've got a real serious problem with appetite, which would be very unusual, we're going to eat, we're going to breathe air, we're going to drink water. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen for you, but it will happen because we need these things to live. And sleep's kind of like that too. So this idea that you need X, and you can fill in the blank with whatever X you want in order to sleep is simply not true. It's never true. I'm... Yeah, here I'm like self-reflecting. I'd love to chat about sleep aids a little bit more. Obviously, you see the market. There's so many natural ones out there too. And like I have, I've been using one uh, just because I was uh, really having, again, a hard time falling asleep. And so I thought, let me jump on and use this natural sleep aid. I had previously used them during times when I was going to Europe and wanted to quickly get yeah. acclimated I think that's to a time. different situation that, yes. that that's probably one of the few if you were going to use something like that to reacclimate to a time zone or if you're a shift worker that makes sense where you've got a plan where i don't use this but in the three days leading to my east to west travel or in the two days going back i'll have this sort of regimen of these medications to help me feel sleepy these medications to help me feel more awake to sort of quickly acclimate um, which you see in a lot of amateur athletes, so they don't have the the money to fly to France and be there for a week and a half mm -hmm. before the race. You know, so they're like flying over, yeah. spend the night, and race the next day because they got other jobs and stuff. So that's a reasonable way to use the medications if you wanted to. But most of the time, all of these right. natural <laughs> sleep aids, CBD, and all this stuff, like we, we really don't need it then. No. And natural is kind of funny because I've never seen a bush that grows, you know, gelatin, <laughs> purple, melatonin, gummy bear, you know, like, so I love how the idea that, you know, it's natural. I want a natural sleep aid, you know, versus, 
but no, we we don't need them. I mean, it's 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 a real failure, and a lot of the blame falls on the medical establishment for not helping people with the problem more. Hey, you know, I hear you're pretty worked up because it's been you've had a month of really bad sleep. Rather than really diving in and helping somebody figure out the problem, doctors don't. They don't have time to do it. And they frankly don't have the expertise or the, the knowledge. Most doctors have gotten no training on sleep. Um, so the melatonin gummy bear is perfect. I'm doing something for you that it would be very difficult for you to hurt yourself with. And I can quickly get you out of the office and get on to my next patient without diving too deeply into this situation. Um, but it creates this idea that people, there are some people who need help to fall asleep when in, case, when in fact they don't. It's really, you need help understanding what's going on with your sleep and how to get out from under it. Not to mention the fact that for a lot of people who have insomnia, there's a massive mismatch between what they feel is happening. You say, write down, tell me about your sleep in the last week. Well, I think one night I got two hours, but the rest I didn't sleep at all. Okay, so in the last seven days, you've gotten two hours of sleep. It's physiologically impossible. Yeah, there's no Especially way. looking at this you know, 40-year-old woman in a Lululemon-like fitness outfit, getting ready to go instruct her class. Like, she looks great. Like, you don't look like what I would think about somebody who's been sleep deprived for a week, getting only two hours. The world record of sleep deprivation is 11 days. And that guy was a disaster after two. You look fine. Like you look better than fine. Does that make sense to you that you've only gotten two hours of sleep? Like as somebody who's gone, I think I've gone 48 is my max because I wanted to see what happened. I mean, I was like hearing my mom's voice telling me to clean my room. Like you should clean your room. Like I'm like, I keep hearing my mom speak. My brain is literally about to disintegrate, you know? So there was nothing subtle about my 48 hours of sleep deprivation. So that perception though can be a killer. It can be an app we call it paradoxical insomnia. We used to call it sleep state misperception before that was called twilight sleep. So it's not the patients coming to me and lying. They truly feel like night after night after night, they get in bed and they just stare at the ceiling for seven hours, alarm clock goes off, they sit up and they go to work, mm. having been awake all night versus if you had a camera or some sort of fitness tracker, which are lovely, you can say, well, I see you've got a fitness tracker, Lululemon fitness instructor. What does it say? Oh, this thing's broken. It says I'm sleeping six, seven hours a night. And the husband says she is. I don't know why she keeps telling everybody she's not sleeping. Every time I wake up. So getting out from under that can be very difficult too. Um, I had a certain, I mean, these are intelligent people. I had a circuit court judge, like right under the Supreme Court. And she said, I don't sleep. I'm like, Does that rationally make sense to you? Do you think you'd be able to do what you do if you weren't sleeping? She's like, I don't know. We actually did a sleep study on her and we had a video and I showed her the video. I was like, you slept for like six hours because she said that she didn't sleep during the sleep study. And she said, I just can't believe that's me as I look at myself because I would have sworn on my grandmother's life that I was just sitting there awake all night long. So there's a lot of very difficult complexities to people when they can't sleep. And it's not about telling her, you're a liar, you sleep, get out of my clinic. It's our problem is not to make you sleep. Now our problem is trying to make you feel your sleep. What can we do to make it such that now that six hours that you are sleeping, that your Fitbit is telling you that you sleep, you actually perceive and feel. And, and we, we can do that. 
this, it just, but it takes a sense of confidence and, and I like your word, you know, sort of fearlessness. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you, so these are folks probably that never feel rested. They like wake up and they're just never rested, but yeah. they did sleep. Yeah, they often feel, they'll use words like I'm dysfunctional. I'm like, well, do you ever fall asleep? Do you ever nap? No, I can't. So it's interesting when you start to parse out what they're feeling, they don't feel well. And I mm. think the anxiety of not sleeping kind of piles on, but there's usually often virtually no indication of sleepiness. If you put me in a car ride for an hour on an interstate with the driver, you know, I'm in the back seat or whatever, I might nod off like a, you know, or I'll fall asleep during a boring lecture or something like that, or reading a book, I might nod off on the weekend. But, you know, these individuals will tell you, I, I can't nap. So you can't sleep at all at night, but you don't really feel sleepy during the day. I mean, it's kind of like somebody saying, I'm lost in the woods without food, starving to death, but I came across some new fresh sandwiches and really didn't want them. Like, that's not how that works. When you're starving, you'll eat food out of a trash can. You can walk into a restaurant, you're going to find something to eat. So we have to reconcile. This is almost magical at this point that you're not sleeping, but you're not sleepy. That's that's not how a, a body works. No, that's, this is so fascinating. It just shows how much more we're almost overthinking uh, about oh, it. Yeah, absolutely. Than- I know, and it's. I'm doing a mental checklist too. Like, okay, Amy, got a got a couple of reframes to do. And this is the problem. It's, I and it goes right back to the first thing we were talking about. I need you to care about your sleep. If you want to be a great runner, you want to be a great business person. All the people you coach, you've got to prioritize and make your sleep as good as it can be. But I need you to stop short of stressing about it. Yeah. And so when you think about that spectrum, there is the paralyzed, I can't sleep. Oh, my God. But then there's something I always call Jenny trauma. I knew a person who was a trauma surgeon. She's a woman. Her name is not Jenny. But I always call her Jenny trauma surgeon. (laughs) Because every time you talk to Jenny trauma surgeon, she's like, as long as I get an hour on my call nights, I'm fine. What she's saying is, as long as I sleep an hour on a chair in a call room, I'm good enough to take the spleen out of your loved one in a traumatic situation. And like, Jenny Trauma said, I don't think you are. Like, I don't want you touching my spleen if you've only slept for an hour. So I'm excited that you feel that kind of confidence in yourself. But that's an inadequate amount of sleep. So I need you to respect sleep more than Jenny Trauma Surgeon does and understand that she needs more than an hour on call to be at her best and to be safest but also like the fact that she understands that, yeah, if I get a little bit of sleep, you know, I can, I can be functional. I can take mm-hmm. your spleen out, even though I've been on call for the last 48 hours. Like I need that person who's paralyzed by insomnia to be a little bit more like her that I'm going to do my best, but if I have a bad night, I can still do it the next day. So it's that middle place. that's just a, it's a blessing when you can get somebody right there. They care but they're not scared. That's right in the middle. Awesome. So speaking of that, before we wrap up, I did want to chat about um, it, not stressing ourselves out more. So if you are wearing a data, I, you've, you've mentioned yeah. you, you think it's great to wear these and track your sleep, I do. but how do we use that data to not like, Oh my gosh, I cannot it's believe like, this. No, it's funny. In my last podcast episode, we talked about <laughs> trendy sleep terms. And one of them is orthosomnia is coined by a woman named Kelly Barron, who's lovely. And orthosomnia was basically 
the obsession with sleep monitoring, where it's not informing your decisions, but rather almost paralyzing you. Oh my God, okay. I gotta get, gotta get a hundred on my sleep monitor and I'm still awake. Oh, great. And I'm going to screw up my tr tracking of my last seven days getting over 90, you know, what I, so to me, it's just really about, you can make better decisions about your sleep when you understand it. So you wear a fitness tracker or a sleep tracker for 30 days. How much sleep have you averaged over 30 days? That might be a great starting point for designing your particular sleep schedule. It seems like mm -hmm. my average is seven hours and 22 minutes. Great. If you go to bed at midnight, set your alarm clock for 722. Like that's giving you a okay. 722 hour for a person who seems at this point in their life to need seven hours and 22 minutes. So um, I can't tell if I sleep better on my mattress or my boyfriend's mattress or if I sleep at his place. Well, now you've got data. Look at the last seven times you slept at his place and the last seven times you slept in your place. Which scores better? Are you noticing that trend? We did a thing with Precision Nutrition where they got a whole bunch of volunteers to not drink for two weeks and then drink and then see what happened or uh, dark room with a mask on versus not dark room, cold room versus not so cold room. Mm -hmm. Um, I participated in the alcohol experiment, which was crazy because I would go to bed at night. And my wife would be like, you forgot your alcohol tonight. I'm like, oh, God. So I'd have to drink two beers right before I went to bed. Um, and it was the temperature that seemed to affect sleep most, just ironically, of all those three situations. But so to me, but we were using fitness trackers to figure out, okay, did the two drinks that Chris had right before bed result in two weeks worse of worse scores than when he wasn't drinking? And they did. Um, or the dark versus light. So you can use those things in a lot of different ways. Using it to stress over your sleep is probably something, if that's causing you anxiety, it might be a good thing just to not wear it or just wear it for a week or two and then get away from it for a while. Fantastic. So final question, what is one last nugget of wisdom listeners can do today? What is the one thing that they should be thinking about or doing to improve their sleep? Yeah, I would think, I think the nugget would be, we talk a lot about eight hours and eight hours is a great midpoint in the bell curve distribution. Are there people who need nine hours? Are there people who need seven or based upon like what you were saying about your own training? Could that vary? Absolutely. Yes. So we always want to make sure that whatever time we're seeking for our sleep is the time that we need specifically as individuals. So if you want to start with eight, that's fine. If you find that you might feel a little bit better with eight and a half. Nothing wrong with that. If you're feeling like, okay, I've got 11 to seven squared away. There's my eight hours, but I go to bed 11 o'clock every night. It takes me an hour to fall asleep. That might be your brain telling you that you need seven instead of eight. And getting seven, if you need seven, is perfectly fine. There's nothing magical about eight outside of it's just an average. Okay. Awesome. Where can listeners get a hold of you if they want to keep up with all of the sleep wisdom? Yeah. Uh, my books are The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep's Broken, How to Fix It, The Rested Child, Why You're Tired, Wired, Irritable Child, They Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. They're both available in all formats, Kindle, Audible, et cetera. Um, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, although I'm not particularly active <laughs> on TikTok. It's all DR Chris Winter, Dr. Chris okay. Winter. And then my podcast is Sleep Unplugged with Dr. Chris Winter. It comes out weekly on all uh, podcast formats. And we just cover 30 minutes of, of some sleep topic uh, every week. And every first, the first week, first Monday of every uh, week, a month is uh, some topic related to insomnia. 
Fantastic. Yes. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful bits of wisdom coming out of there. Thank you so much today for all of the mindset shifts and the sure, wisdom. Absolutely. I appreciate it. You bet. Very nice talking to you, Amy. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So once again, we're ch I'm chatting with an expert that has changed my perspective. And actually, since speaking with Dr. Winter, I have taken some of his suggestions to heart, removing that fear and anxiety around sleep. And I actually have been sleeping better than ever. Um, I'm finding that it's really important to ensure that my nighttime routine is intact. I'm emptying my brain. I'm not watching um, crazy psychological thrillers before bed. And, um, you know, I haven't used my natural sleep aid in a really long time. So I do want you to take Dr. Winter's perspectives and um, his mindset shifts to heart because they really, really have helped me a lot, especially coming off of a really intense burnout. If you have any questions for me, do not hesitate to reach out info at personalbestcoaching.net or on Instagram at life on my terms podcast. In the meantime, remember to live your best life by taking charge and living life on your terms. I'm Amy Mongeta. I'll catch you next time.